Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, How to College First Gen. I'm Dan and one of our co-hosts. In this episode, I'm interviewing three first gens about self-esteem and self-efficacy. The point of this episode is really to highlight the pride that should come with being first gen. And throughout these narratives, I hope you can see why and how you can feel pride as a first gen. So without further ado, let's go into our first guest, Katie. Hi, Katie. So nice to have you on our podcast. Can you introduce yourself for our audience? Hi, Dan. Hi, guys. I'm Katie. I am an incoming freshman at Hopkins, and I'll be majoring in BME this fall. I am a really STEM person during my high school year, um, but I'm also really into finance for background-wise. I am bilingual. I moved from China at the age of 12, and I am the first, I'm not the first student to enter college because I have an older sister, but I am the first-gen student to enter college, and I'm also part of the low-income yeah, no, thank you for sharing. So you mentioned that you were like first in your family to go to college. Like, how did you first learn about that term? I learned about that term pretty early on when I applied to a program called Minds Matter in my sophomore year, which is where I met you then. It's a program dedicated for low-income students who are trying to get to college. It's lacking the resources. And when I applied, they indicated what first generations and low-income means. And I was definitely that bracket. My parents didn't even finish their high school degree back in the time when they were in China. So that was something that I really needed, the support to go to college and just to learn the college process and have someone to be there to support me. That makes a lot of sense. And how do you feel about all that? How do you feel about being first gen? Mm -hmm. Being first gen, I see the pros and cons. I know I'm not having a lot of resources compared to other people. But at the same time, I did, you know, find the right group of people at Minds Matter. And I'm pretty proud to be a first gen because to me, education is everything to my family too. I feel like being a first generation to attend college means that I'm changing. I am, you know, bringing something to the table for my family. So in the future, my kids wouldn't be the first gen. You know, it's like something that we're starting. It's it's something that we support. So yeah, I'm pretty proud to be a first gen. That's so exciting. You were mentioning to me that you just moved to Johns Hopkins this weekend. How's the first few days been there? I'm here for a pre-orientation program called Hopkins Lead, which is dedicated to for leadership development. And um, that's for three days, and then I have orientation for another week. And I just moved in yesterday. The program started, oh, I moved in two days ago, and the program started yesterday. So it was really hectic trying to get everything done. And just to talk about the experience of moving in, I think you should never pack less, but also don't overpack. If your dorm doesn't have enough room for you, it might be chaotic for you to try to arrange everything, especially if you're moving on the same day as your roommate, that might be really chaotic. But other than that, there's always upperclassmen helping you with moving in. For me, I did it with my family because it's career orientation and my first year mentors aren't here yet. But I think overall, there are just a lot of adjusting that you have to do. And I would suggest looking at the map of your dorm, like of your hall. And also looking at the map of the campus, I found that very helpful. I didn't do that, but my friend did it. So I did it last night. Just knowing every place and also, you know, meet your RA. Don't be shy. Ask any questions like if you don't know where the laundry room is, anything like that. I think they're very helpful. And find your community. Everyone's moving in. Don't be shy. It's good to make friends. I played cards so late yesterday. Make some friends just at the commons room. That's so awesome to hear. Like, it sounds like you have a game plan kind of for making friends. Where do you feel like you learn to be that confident or just to put yourself out there? Well, I moved to the U.S. at the age of 12, and I was living in Portland with my host family. So that was my first year. I didn't know any English. And that kind of pushed me to speak because it was the rural area also. So there wasn't someone, there wasn't someone in my race or like even close to, close to someone like I can connect to culturally. So that kind of pushed me to learn English. And that's why like I'm really active from all the moving out. Like I moved to New York the next year, 
and a lot of things that pushed me to make connections and not to be afraid to ask. I feel like some people might consider themselves less extroverted, but I feel you you definitely have some friends in your life or have great conversations with people. Just think of it as that way, whether you are trying to make a friend, talking to professors, or just networking. Think of it as something you're trying to make a long-term relationship, right? So introduce yourself, find the common passions between you and other people. And I feel like that's going to make everything less stressful and just automatically makes you more confident making new friends and accept or adapting to your new college life. That's some really wise advice. I'm so proud of you. What do you think you're looking forward to this fall as you start college? Before I moved in, all I was talking about was going to my dorm because that was like something I'm really excited and then for now, like current moment, it's meeting my roommate and my suite mate. And I think in a longer term for the semester, I really want to get to know my professors. I think yesterday was really weird to walk on campus and see professors walking by. That was intimidating for me. But I feel I do want to get to know them, taking their classes and attending their office hour. So that's like something I'm really looking forward to. And then another thing is joining JXU CSSA, the Chinese organization. Because I think even before I moved in, just when I enrolled in school and like got accepted and I was considering, or even like after when I like commit to the school, the organization helped me a lot or club helped me a lot. They have online group chat where there are so many upperclassmen helping out. So I think I want to be a part of that community. I was really close to my Asian American community back in New York. So I wanted to do the same in college. I feel like that would be something I'm also really looking forward to, but depends on my workload. I might have to join, you know, the second semester just to get used to things. Do you think there are any challenges that you're going to encounter this first year prepared for that you've like heard about? First year, well, the first thing I want to say, you are going to be traumatized for the class selection process. It was so hectic. It was fighting to get a class and having one plan A, B, C, D, E wasn't even enough. So I think that's like the first thing every first year student should be worried about. But um, eventually you'll get a schedule, so that's that's okay. But I feel like for me, the challenge would be the workload. I am a BME major, so I have to take a lot of the engineering intro classes, all the STEM classes, so, you know, like chemistry, physics, bio, everything you can think of. Oh, not bio, but calculus. So I feel like that's going to be stressful for me, learning chemistry and physics, not for the first time, but not something I'm very familiar with. That's like what I think my biggest challenge currently and then outside of academic I think it would also be hard for me to try to look for research or like a work study and trying to put that into my schedule so just time management that I have to figure out on my first year other than that I feel like I'll be just fine making friends um, and just adapting to the campus because I have my school is relevantly small I think I'll just fine for that part well, I'm definitely excited for you. It's, it's the beginning of a new, uh, people always say like a new chapter. Maybe we can call it a new season, new budget. No, I mean, I think we're getting towards the end of like the questions I wanted to ask you, but is there any advice that you'd want to share with first-gen like high school students who are getting ready to apply to college or about to start their first semester as well? Like, is there anything that you would share for them before we go head off? I apply to 20 over uh, amount of colleges last year. So it's really important to start early. I really suggest people getting their application start, starting it early. I, I tried to apply to, well, I did apply to Crestbridge, so that kind of pushed me to have at least like my personal statement and some of the essays done by November of my junior year or senior year coming into senior year. If you do have a draft of your personal statement ready by, you know, before the summer of your junior year or like by the end of your junior year, that would be great for you to try to fix that or like ask for advice um, during the time before you actually have to submit your application. And then college application wise, it's always good to research the school before you start writing their essay. Different schools have different things or different character that they're looking for from a student. I know for a fact, like for a JHU, it's more 
academic base like they're looking for you know someone who's really like achiever and then I know for Cornell they're looking for someone who's hardworking even if you're not maybe like as talented as you think yourself is like you're not playing any instruments like you're not winning any big contests but I know that Cornell is looking for someone who's willing to work hard like taking a lot of hard courses and engage in their community and have that like multi-learning experience so just look at the college websites, talk to alumni. I feel like if you reach out on LinkedIn, that would be, a lot of people would, would be willing to help you with that. Like if you want to schedule like a short 10, 20 minutes talk with them, that was what I did when I applied to college, especially for my early position college. And that's also a ding. Uh, you should try to lock down one of your favorite college. I know it's like hard for people to pay, you know, what is their first choice, but try to lock that in. And if you can do early action, which is like no commitment, but you can apply early, try to do that for as many colleges as possible. Because then financial A-wise, you will have your package earlier. You have more time to consider, more time to ask your advisor or counselor for other options. And then after that process, it's not, you know, it's not ending. It's not like, oh, you're just waiting now. You also have to apply for scholarship. Just start applying like little ones. They do matter at the end. Like They would add up and it would help you a lot because college is expensive and we're low-income students. It's going to be hard for us to try to pay that tuition um, in the future. And you don't want to take a lot of private loans. So I think that's like a general, like overall what do you do before the application started, like during and also afterward? Mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. It sounds like you were really prepared or as prepared as you could have been to get through the process. So you're making it work. But thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate getting to talk with you. Thank you, Dan. Next up, we have our next guest, Miriam who's a current college student at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Miriam. So nice to have you on our podcast. Uh, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, so I'm Miriam Tugan. I'm a rising sophomore at the University of Pennsylvania, thinking about studying philosophy, politics, and economics with a concentration in globalization. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My parents are from Western Africa, Mali and Ivory Coast. So I guess that makes me Mali and American. And I'm super excited to be here today. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So something we always ask our guests when we join the podcast is, you know, can you tell us like the first time you identified with the term first-gen college student? Um, The first time I identified as first-gen college student was in the ninth grade. I got into the scholars program at CEO Scholars, which is based in New York. And it was there that I learned that a lot of the terms that were used to kind of identify the type of identity that I have and how people would perceive me once I entered the academics higher education space and having to grapple with that because I feel I think that the first generation identity it applies to so much more than just the just in a college setting it can also be more cultural like kind of like being a first-gen African-American or being a first-gen college student all of those it makes like the first-gen identity way more I guess multifaceted and more, even more complex to grapple with, even in like the academic space. No, that makes a lot of sense. Like the intersectionality of being first gen, and like you mentioned that you like first heard about the term first gen when you were like a ninth grader. So like, how do you think you felt then, and like how do you feel now? All right. So in the ninth grade, when I first learned that I would be char- characterized as first gen, I knew. I was I was excited. I kind of felt more like I guess empowered that like you know I had this this type of identity attached to me. I knew that though I wasn't the first person in my family to go to college, I knew I was the first person on this side of the world and on this continent in particular to go to college. It it was very hard for my family members to kind of understand this type of education system, and so I knew that I would. I took pride in the fact that I would have to put in a little more grit than others in order to achieve what I wanted to achieve here. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think it's really cool that you bring it up. Like when I was in school, like, and I was learning about first gen, like also learning, like, it's not just 
one narrative. It's not just one or neither of your parents went to college. It could be like first in your family in this country, first to go to an elite institution. Like there's so many ways to think about like that first gen experience. So no, I think it's really cool that you bring that up. And, you know, I kind of wanted to backtrack. You mentioned you were in this program called SEO. What was that program for? Like, how did it help you in high school? Yeah, so SEO is a uh, scholars program based in New York City as well as San Francisco. And it's a college preparatory program for underserved high schoolers. It was actually there I understood the diversity of being first gen (laughs) because, like, people from all walks of life, I feel like the SEO community is more so... is probably the most diverse space that I've ever been in and it was a space that I like really had to grapple with the fact that being first gen comes in all different shapes and forms that's really awesome the whole point of this episode is to talk about like first gen pride and it sounds like you really carried that pride through throughout your high school experience and even maybe even in college could you mention like was that pride ever tested like when you first got to Penn that pride was definitely tested when I first got to Penn. I I mean, in addition to, you know, the whole pandemic <laughs> and having to grapple with like being virtual, it, I think it was it was a bit of like an added stress that you know like an extra an extra weight to carry. Being new to a space but not only but also knowing that you're not the majority in a space, especially being first gen. I think that there's way more for you to grapple with being first gen in a virtual environment. I think I had to, I think that was being like, I was very proud of being first gen in high school. I was very vocal about the fact that I was first gen, that I was the first in my family on the side of the world. And I took a lot of pride in that, but it's kind of like when coming into a space where you don't see that many people being vocal about it, or you know that you may not be the, or you know you may not be a part of the majority and sometimes there's a bit of a stigma attached to it, it kind of makes you feel a bit ashamed or a bit hesitant to even share the fact that you're a first gen. Because when you do so, I think a lot of that comes with a lot of assumptions and it's kind of like a single story that's attached to the identifier of being a first gen student, even though we within ourselves or within our community, we know that it comes in so many different shapes and forms. Not many people do, but there is a picture behind the the saying of being first gen that I think many people carry and it's kind of hard to I guess knock the the misconceptions and the misinformation that people have around that identity and having to kind of break that down while also being in a virtual environment dealing with the pandemic and being a first year student it comes with a lot of anxieties and having to grapple with how many other things you have to deal with on top of that no I, I totally hear that you know there was a lot that you said there, and I, I definitely want to make space for all that. So the first thing that I want to touch on is, like, what do you think those misconceptions or assumptions people make are when you say you're first? And, like, maybe it was to a random classmate you met or to, like, a professor. Like, what do you think those assumptions were? You know, I've had people stop and literally think, <laughs> like, you can see the, the wheels turning in their heads, like, oh, first gen, Wow. And they have to really sit down and just like think about what does that mean? And I think the two reactions that I think I've got gotten from telling people that I was first gen was either them trying to be more understanding and being more nice. <laughs> and I, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know why that is. Or it's kind of like people trying to give me a crutch, I guess, in a sense. It's kind of like she needs more help. So you mentioned like, Sometimes people act a little more nice. They think, like, because you're first gen, like, you need a crutch or you need extra help. Yeah, how does that make you feel? Like, what's your response? It makes me feel a bit inadequate. I think that it comes from a good place. I think that when people try to be nicer or try to give you an extra crutch, which is sometimes needed, but I'll probably ask for it (laughs) when I need help. Uh, If I don't need help, I think rather than trying to kind of do it for me or tell me how to do it because I find I think I'm a very independent person and I think that sometimes just comes with not to generalize the first generation community but I think that being independent is definitely like a common trait that most first gens have and so kind of going from not being independent 
to being dependent on certain people who want to be nice, which is coming from a nice place. I, I respect it, but it also just makes me feel as if maybe I can't do it. And that doesn't make me feel any more stronger to, fe- to feel as if I, I belong in the environment or I belong in the space because I always feel like people are trying to help. No, I hear you. Can you give an example of that from your first year of college? Like, does anything like stand out like, oh my gosh, like this was so annoying or not so annoying, but like to your point of what you're just talking about? Um, sometimes people would double check my work. Sometimes people would, I don't know, take charge without regard to what I want. Or it t- kind of seems like I'm always taking, like I'm always in a passenger seat. Like I can no longer be in the driver's seat because I, I don't know better. And I know it's not, it's not, it's not the intention of the person. It's definitely not the intention. These people are coming from a good place. Like they're really coming from a good place, but it's also intention, intentionality also like it, intentionality doesn't always matter. I think like you can, intentionality can sometimes be negative and it can not, sometimes make people feel inadequate. And I think that that's what I have the most quarrel with. Yeah. So a phrase I've used before is like intent versus impact. Someone may have intended for an outcome, but there was an impact that they didn't perceive. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, for sure. And so, you know, you talked about this being like part of your first year experience. Like, how did you work through that your first year? Like, is it resolved? Is it like an ongoing challenge? Like, do you think things will be different this year? I think for things to be different, I have to recognize the value in myself and what I bring to a space before depending on others to find that value in me. Because I think a lot of what happens for first-gen students, or what happened for me in particular, was a bit of imposter syndrome. I kind of came into the space not knowing why I was there, questioning what <laughs> like certain opportunities that I got or certain interviews that I got. I was like, why, why am I here? What am I doing? Like, why? Like, I'm just lucky. And that really takes away from the hard work that you put into it. It doesn't make you realize that like you actually put in work to get there. But sometimes you just blame it on luck. So I think that in coming into this next year, I would say that what I wanted to want to do is recognize more value in myself and recognize the hard work that I put in as a first gen. And I think that recognizing value and finding confidence in yourself kind of helps with the, not only the imposter syndrome, but that feeling of of belonging in a space because no one's going to find value in yourself. You don't find value in yourself. No, that's so true. So I guess to, I'll start with the first question. How are you trying to build confidence in yourself now? Do you feel like, is there anything you tell yourself? Is there anything you've been seeking? Something that I kept doing in the first year was comparing myself to others. What are people studying? What are other people doing? What type of clubs are they in? What are they interested in? What did they eat? What did they listen to? <laughs> Literally everything. And I thought I really had to like uproot my ent- my entire cultural upbringing <laughs> to kind of fit in because you, you want like when you don't fit, we're all human, right? Like we all want to fit in. We all want that sense of belonging. And sometimes we are willing to do a lot of different things in order to get that. So what I'm doing now is focusing is I kind of had to put myself back into that high school space where I felt most confident in telling myself that, yeah, you're first gen, you have a grit, you have the energy to do X, Y, and Z, and you're going to achieve it no matter what. Um, I had to bring myself back into high school mode and tell myself like you are Miriam Tadon, like you can do this. What do I like? I liked writing. I like reading. I like dancing. I like, I don't know, everything okay I'm very I like I like I had to tell myself I like so many different things and tell myself what was I good at and bring that back into my summer and then ongoing second year experiences because I feel like if I continue to try and put myself in spaces where I don't like certain things or I'm not comfortable in doing certain things then that's not going to help me be my most authentic self right and it's not going to help me build the confidence that I want to see in myself as a first gen navigating college yeah, no, I really like how you put that. Go just going back to the basics, like what's like the truest things about yourself and like go from there. And you talked about like spaces and I think this kind of goes back to my other point, like or my other question. What spaces are you seeking now that help you like like how do you make yourself feel like you belong? How do I make myself feel like I don't know, I feel like I have to know myself before I figure that out. <laughs> I don't think I know myself enough to understand where I belong. I think that's what I'm still trying to figure it out. But I know that I know that where I find a lot of comfort 
is with within spaces where people not necessarily have the same upbringing, but have an openness to learning about different upbringings. Like I think that it's not about being in, well, definitely being in spaces where people look like you or people think like you is sometimes helpful. But I also think that that's not always possible. So kind of finding spaces where people are open to learning about you and what you think and how different we are and finding commonalities within those differences. Those are spaces that I'm looking for. And I think one space for me in particular that I've been able to find that is in the Pan-African Student Association because there's such, there's such, a, there's such a diverse community in the African Student Association. I think a lot of people kind of use this and identify as African and just like think of one sort of people, but it's really not <laughs> it's so diverse. Um, and I'm so happy that like people, first gen, international students, People who have like hyphenated identities within with the Af- within the African community also are so interested in learning about each other, and I think that that's like the learning environment that I want to be in. But I also f- I also strive to find learning spaces like that in other communities as well. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think I went to a couple of events with Pasa before, so no, it's definitely a cool group to be around. Yeah, yeah, no. So I guess a related question. So you talked about like student groups that like have been helpful. Do you think there's like resources on campus that have been helpful for you? I think there are resources on campus, but I think actually using those resources is the entire problem of why sometimes we struggle more than we have to. I came onto campus knowing that I was dealing with some sort of anxiety. I think coming from a background like mine, kind of seeking help isn't, it's kind of like, You've been conditioned to think that you've been strong for so long that you just think you have to continue being strong. And that's detrimental because like I said before, we're all human. We're not strong. We can be soft. And it's not even soft. It's just like vulnerable and like open to just being open. I think that that's what more people need to do, especially me. I think CAPS was definitely something that I should have used, but I still haven't up to this day. I've kind of been leaning on my friends as a crutch for some reason. And I think that's stressful to not only them, but me, because I keep talking about the same things over and over and over again. I know they're getting annoyed, but (laughs) they're just going to have to deal with it, I guess. (laughs) But I I think that most people have to, especially me, I need to make the change into actually using the resources that are constantly like put in your face, but you're not like actually actively using because we do get emails about these resources. They're definitely there. It's just up to us to like actually take the first step to reach out. Yeah, so you kind of touched on this point about like, you know, not wanting to ask for help or it's kind of frowned upon to ask for help. Like there's another term that I think about when it comes to first gens called hyper-independence. Like what does that term mean to you? I think that's pretty deep. Hyper-independence, I think... A lot of the times we use independence as a positive adjective to describe ourselves. And I don't think I don't think it should be positive in all aspects because coming into college, I think that the, one of the things that put me into, into trouble with myself and stressing myself is the fact that I wasn't I don't I didn't think I was being independent enough because I think college is an entirely different ballgame. You have to be able to talk to people about what it is that you're struggling with, especially when it comes to classes like math or calculus. (laughs) You need to be able to reach out to people and ask them for help. And I think that with being first gen, I'm very used to just figuring things out for myself because at such a young age, I knew I had to do that because my parents didn't understand like the American school system. I was the eldest of my family. So I was like literally the first person to go to college. I knew I was like paving ways for like my younger siblings to follow. And I knew that if I messed up, it would probably have a great impact on them. And so being independent or being hyper-independent and putting all that pressure on myself was detrimental to my own mental health and how I, and it, it, I think it, it was also detrimental to my academics as well, because I don't think you do as well when you're that stressed, when you're putting like the entire weight of the, of the world and your family and p- your family's future on your shoulders simply because you're first gen. So being, for, being hyper-independent or being independent, it can be good, 
in certain situations where, you know, you're taking the lead and you're taking initiative and you're starting new things and you're trailblazing in whatever field that you are in. But when it comes to needing help and reaching out and understanding that sometimes you need people around you to achieve certain some of your goals, independence can being independent can be negative, especially for first gen students, because it's harder for us to ask for help. We've done so many things by ourselves. We've completed documents, tax, tax, filed taxes by ourselves. We've what applied for certain applications, did then probably our entire college applications by ourselves as well. Like we we know how to function by ourselves. That's like we're on autopilot to do that. So turning that off is kind of hard because it's kind of like we put super glue in the button and we don't want to go back. <laughs> yeah, no. So it sounds like you've done a lot of thinking about trying to like overcome this hyper-independence. What do you think helps you like work through that? And what do you think you're still struggling with? I, th- I have done a lot of thinking about it. I think I've done a lot of thinking about it when I've done a lot of like group activities in my, fir- my second semester, spring semester. And I realized I'm not a team player. <laughs> I don't like to be a team player. I like to be the lead. And I think that that looks good on your resume when you like are the founder of certain X, Y, Z things and you've taken the lead on this. But then when you get to college and like you have to join clubs and you have to be a team player, like that's something that was just a big shift for me because I don't know how to ask for help or how to tell people that I need help or I don't know how to how to simply like be vulnerable to like ask about small things like how do you make this Excel sheet do this? (laughs) I'm usually the type to like Google it and spend hours Googling it until I figure it out when it could have been as simple as texting a friend and asking them for help. For me, I think what I'm still struggling with is not asking for help, but also recognizing I right now I'm at, I'm at a crossroads of understanding what can I do by myself and what can I, what can I ask for, ask people for? Because I think that I, something, a thought that constantly keeps coming into my head is if I keep asking people for help, I'll keep depending on them and then I'll become dependent. I won't be an independent person. And that's something that runs through my mind constantly. And I think it's a little, it's a bit toxic. It's a bit toxic (laughs) because I don't think that asking for help should automatically deem yourself to it it shouldn't it shouldn't automatically make you dependent it should make you even more i think independent because you understand the fact that you under you need help and for you to accomplish a certain goal you need to have people on your side i guess giving you tips as well do you feel like there's any tips that you have to share with other first gens who are thinking about their identity as first gen like how to feel more pride or how to ask for more help. Is there anything that like sticks out to you as something you want to share? Something that I think I always share with most people who I talk to is don't fit the narrative complicated. I think that's like my, something that I always share. <laughs> I have to always share that because I think all throughout high school, especially during the college process when I was, and I was told to write a personal statement, people wanted me to fit this narrative. And it was a very particular narrative that like, I don't know, I was a black girl who danced (laughs) and I didn't want that. I didn't like, I didn't feel like that showed all aspects of who Miriam Tagon was. And I had to sit down with myself and I I expressed myself through writing. I like write on my notes app a lot. So I had to like tell myself that I can't keep putting myself into the boxes that other people tell me to put myself in because when I do that, I feel incomplete or I feel like there's so many parts of my identity that just paved the way kind of or just dissipated into into thin air and what I've come to have what I have to understand about myself is that as humans I think humans in general are just very multifaceted but we are so quick to kind of put labels on ourselves and kind of like put ourselves in this in a stagnated position to just fit into this particular narrative or box and I think for first gens in particular, when we come into different spaces, we try to find a box to latch onto because we want to have that sense of belonging. We want to be known for something. But I think that trying to be your most authentic self, no matter how complicated that is, is always, I guess, better because I feel like people can, people feel most comfortable when they're showing all parts of themselves or like comfortable with all parts of themselves. 
and not worried about whether people would judge certain parts of their identities more than another, more than other like aspects of their identity. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. I'm so happy that we got to talk about this and actually put this somewhere. I think this has been, it's been toiling around in my mind. I'm actually happy that we've got to talk about this. And finally, we have our last guest, Kayla, who's currently in her master's program at Xavier University. Hi, Kayla. Welcome to the How to College First Gen podcast. It's so nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Can you introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, my name is Kayla Barillas. I'm originally from Cleveland, but I'm down in Cincinnati right now for grad school. I'm currently a full-time grad student at Xavier University studying to be a mental health counselor. So I'm in their clinical mental health program. Both of my parents immigrated to the U.S. from El Salvador. So I would say I'm 99% Salvadoran and 1% American, but that's just a joke I say. (laughs) No, that's really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. To kick us off, can you tell us a little bit more about when you first learned you were a first-generation college student? Yeah, so I first learned I was considered first-generation when I was in high school. I remember I was sitting in a, I think it was an American history class, and the topic of first-generation came up, and I didn't really know what that meant. I was like, what is that? And I remember that I read... It was just a student or child of two immigrants or an immigrant who has never graduated college. Is going to be the first to graduate college, of course, in their family. So I came to know that I didn't. My parents didn't have any education. None of my extended family really had any education. So I would be like the first, first gen number one. <laughs> so that's kind of when I first learned about that. Yeah. No, that must have been really interesting because. I can definitely relate to, like, growing up, you don't always think about those things. Oh, like, this is the way my family does things. And then you're like, oh, wait, this doesn't mean your family is different in a bad way. It just your family might be different from, like, peers. Because I know you went to a private high school, right? Yeah, so I went to St. Joseph Academy up there in Cleveland. And I wouldn't have been able to go there if when I later found out that I was on a Cleveland scholarship tuition thing. So... My parents paid a really small amount because I had good grades. So I was able to go there. And I didn't know it was like such a big struggle to get to where I was going to school. I've gone, I'd gone to private school my entire life, but I had been on this like Cleveland tuition plan that was from the diocese. And they gave a lot of help to me as long as I kept my grades up. So I was very grateful to the city of Cleveland, to the diocese, that they, I was able to get such a good education because I really don't know where I would have been without my education. No, that's awesome. That's so cool that they had a program like that. I think one of my other friends had done something similar. But, you know, with all that said, like, how did that make you feel when you first found out you were first gen? It sounded like a lot of responsibility. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think I was, I I think I subtly knew I was first gen. I just didn't have a label to it. Since some of my older cousins didn't graduate from high school or from college, all that responsibility to graduate kind of fell on me. So I was kind of not necessarily groomed, but like I was taught that, you know, you have to graduate college because you're going to be the first one in our family. You're going to be super proud. And I felt proud of that. I felt proud of that label myself. I felt pride in myself, my family. I was happy to be different than other people. It didn't really affect my pride, of course. Later on in my journey, which I'm sure you'll hear, identity issues come up and other struggles that a lot of people, the majority of people don't really go through. I think being first gen is a very unique experience mentally, academically, just life-wise, you know. That's actually a great segue because I think you touched on like how you feel first gen pride and like, um, you know, you mentioned that like it can affect your mental health. So you want to take like a first stab at like talking through that? Like how did that maybe feeling change when you first started college? Yeah, so I would say I struggled a little bit with identity in high school at first, because, you know, high school is supposed to be that time where you start distancing yourself from your parents' beliefs, and you start building your own style, your own opinions, your own beliefs about the world. And that was kind of a struggle for me in high school, because 
specifically in my experience, I'm not sure about other people, but in the Latinx world, decisions are kind of made for us sometimes where, for example, I had this belief that you had to be married first in order to do like anything sexually. And I think in high school, that really changed, high school really changed my mind about that because you see a lot of people having sex, you know, before marriage. And you're just like, wait, this is what the majority does. And then this is what my family believes. So which one is correct? (laughs) And then you're, you're just starting to form your own beliefs and then trying to change your parents' beliefs. And it just doesn't really match. A lot of people are kind of, a lot of parents are are set in their ways quite harshly at times. And I think everyone's allowed to entitled to their own opinion, but that kind of this dissociation or difference between opinions can be really hard when you get to college because you were supposed to have already dealt with those identity issues. And you're still forming identity, of course, as an early adult, but you're kind of ending that period of your life. Whereas I was kind of beginning that period of my life in college. And there are very important decisions that need to be made as an 18 year old. What major, what are you going to major in college? What are you going to do after college? What career do you want? You know, you're kind of responsible for feeding yourself in college, getting a job, paying your own textbooks off. It's just so much already on an 18 year old. So going from that dependency from being a teenager to being an adolescent in college is a really difficult transition for a lot of people. I definitely struggled with that my freshman year. Personally, I went to a college where it was very commuter based. So there wasn't a lot of activities for college students to mingle or um, get to know each other because people already came with their own friends. They, they weren't looking for any other friends <laughs> at the time. So it was a really hard transition for me to go to having seeing my friends every single day in high school and then coming to college where I didn't have any. Since I am I would consider myself an omnivert. I can be extroverted or introverted, depending on level of comfortability, of course, and situation. So that was a really big transition for me. And that 18-year-old transition stress with identity issues and then not being able to see friends, that can really take a toll on a person. And full self-disclosure, you know, I'm definitely comfortable talking about this. My grades tanked my first year. I was in a major that I didn't like. I didn't, I was a pre-med major at first and I thought I was going to be a doctor because that's what I was taught to do. And that's what I was taught to want to do because I am a first gen. I have that responsibility of doing the most as possible because I am the first one and setting that standard for all the younger ones. And that pressure really got to me with all the added on extra stress. So my grades tank, you know, I fell into a really deep depression and it was just rock bottom. I had always been a good student. So finding out that I didn't do so well on exams, that was just like, took a a really big toll on your self esteem, right? So it was a lot to go through. It's been a journey. And then after that first year, I decided to just take some general classes, try to figure out some stuff with my advisor. I had a fantastic advisor at Cleveland State. Her name was Angie. Unfortunately, she transferred this year to another job, but her name was Angie and she was from the TRIO program at CSU, which also helps low-income minority first-gen students. And she was just a wonderful advisor and helped me try to rework everything. And I focused on my studies and my jobs my second year, and I was able to see my grades spike up, my GPA spiked really high up. And I was able to get out of that. It took a lot of time and energy. So it was really difficult. But, you know, I think a lot of people go through that stress and those issues in different ways. And I think it's important to talk about the mental health impact that those issues have on a person because it can really, really affect and impair functioning as a young adult. No, I I wholeheartedly agree. And thank you for sharing like such a vulnerable story. I actually can relate to a lot of that. Like when I was in high school, I think you might remember I went to like the Cleveland School of Science and Medicine to like they literally give you a white coat your freshman year and there's this expectation that you all want to go into medicine and and I think I was really excited about that because I was excited about like feeling accepted and feeling like I'm doing something that people are proud of me for so like going to college and starting with pre-med classes I think I already had like a pre-health focus instead but I called it pre-med or that's what people would say it was but yeah, same same tra- uh, challenges. 
taking some STEM classes. And like for people listening, don't think we don't like STEM. Like we've interviewed people who love STEM and who are doing STEM. We have a host who is an engineer. So, but all that to say, like for in this in these two cases, we had an interest. It didn't pan out, and part of that's because it's not actually what your interests were because you never had the time to like form your own opinions about it. Um, and sometimes they match, sometimes they don't. For me, like, I think I was a little more stubborn and like I had dragged that crisis out until I was a sophomore. So freshman year was like, okay, like didn't get the best grades, but yeah. And then sophomore year, I definitely like tanks. Like I got a D in like Chem 101 and then I got like an F in like Chem 102. The professor told me I should still take Chem 102. I'm like, this professor's probably not the best to give advice after the fact. So yeah, similar story, just like talking to an advisor, like really focusing on like, well, what do I want? What do I like? And yeah, and then seeing a similar turnaround in my junior fall. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a crazy time. Probably shouldn't use the word crazy, but it's, it's a challenging time for everyone. And I just, I was like, oh, it's cool. Glad we could relate to that. The next thing I'm kind of interested in hearing about, like you, like things got better and like, you kind of mentioned the toll it can have and the loss of function. Like, how did you, what were some of the things that helped you get through that? Like, you, you mentioned at a brief level, like, talking to, like, your advisor and, like, taking different classes. But, like, what were some strategies that you used to help pull yourself out of where you were? Yeah, so, honestly speaking, you know, I don't know if I really handled that the best because today I'm still struggling mental health wise. Again, full disclosure, I'm seeing a therapist right now. And it's not that I'm crazy per se. It's just that there, I think having a therapist can put you into check, can make you, can really bounce off ideas to see if you're doing things in, in a healthy manner. Yes, I got through my depression my second year, but I was really focused on work and education. And that's all I focused on. But I wasn't really taking care of myself. Like my diet was out of, was really just insane. My sleeping issues were really bad. You know, I, I talked to my parents through it and luckily they were understanding. Of course, that is not the same situation as a lot of other parents. They were really banking on me to be a doctor, but we had a really serious conversation and about my mental health and they were very understanding of what I was going through. So they just wanted to make sure that I could graduate in order to have a good career. They just they didn't care what it was. Again, that is not the same situation for a lot of people. Understandably, there's a lot of parents that are really stubborn out there, and it might not go that down the same way. But I think it's important to either way to start setting boundaries on what your parents have input in your life on. That is definitely one of the lessons and one of the boundaries that I think I had to establish early on, that they didn't have an input on what I was going to do in my life because they're not going to be there forever. You take charge of your own life. And it's really hard to set those boundaries with parents. It definitely was an emotional conversation with them, but it was healthy. And that's kind of their support and, you know, calling my friends that were away and, focusing on work. That's kind of how I was able to get past that, but it didn't really solve the mental health part. You know, I still have a lot of work to do. Uh, I've been seeing a counselor for a little while now, and I know I can bounce ideas off of, off of her, and she gives me feedback, and she's just, an, just a non-judgmental person that I can bring all of my thoughts to, my expressions to, so then I don't have to deal with them in unhealthy ways. Because if you, if you don't deal with them in healthy ways, you can go down really dark paths, you know, and I think that just comes from the importance of taking care of your mental health. I think a great analogy that some of my counseling professors use is when you break your arm, you go see a doctor, right? You don't just let it heal on its own. Same with your mental health. If you're going through something, you go to see a mental health counselor to get that hopefully fixed. And of course, mental health counselors are like doctors. Not everyone's going to fit to each one. So it's important to, to be open to it. Maybe I understand there's a stigma around mental health still and that some people may consider it crazy. Like my parents, my parents were definitely not the biggest fans of, of hearing their daughter was going to go see a mental health counselor, even though I am in the mental health counseling field. Because there is that stigma in the Latinx world where if you go see a, a therapist, 
it means you're crazy, quote unquote crazy, which is not the truth. It's just that everyone goes through issues and having a non-judgmental person there to bounce ideas and feelings off of is really important, especially if you're in a very isolating situation. For example, this is the first time I've moved away from home. I'm down here in Cincinnati now and I was feeling really homesick. And that was when I was like, oh, I'm going to head down my depression again because depression comes in waves. So I took the first step and I went to go seek out a therapist, which was the first step. And therapists are in your universities. Like they have a counseling center, I assure you. And you don't have to pay anything to go see one. And it's very important to go take care of that mental health, just as it just as important as it is to go get your physical done each year. Just listening to all that, like it reminded me of another guest I interviewed and the way she kind of framed it is like therapy for some people can just feel like another bill you pay, like a utility. Like it's it's just an important thing to keep in mind. Like when you're budgeting, you're like, I got my utilities, I have my rent, and I got therapy. You know, rent therapy gas and I'm fine. But just as a concept, like it should feel that normal if you need it. And especially when kind of what you mentioned earlier, like if you're just starting to unpack a lot of what you were going through in high school when you're starting college there's a lot of work to do i also have a therapist and like i also think it's been really helpful and just to like help have breakthroughs and just unlearning like some practices you have and when you mentioned how you kind of focus on work more yeah i can definitely see how that can still leave room for issues to be there like if you're if you have no bound like having boundaries with family is important having boundaries with work is just as important so you eventually learn like wait I still need time to like do my laundry I've been at work until 9 p.m like yeah I, I just really appreciate you sharing that and it's really important and your the strategy you mentioned talking to your family and trying to set those boundaries is super important for anyone to work on doing I guess and it, and it sounds like when you were talking about that like you see seeking mental health and focusing on that as like a good thing to do like maybe at first there was some challenge but like similar to how you feel about like feeling prideful about feeling first gen like would you say you feel also like prideful or like or i don't want to have a leading question but like how does seeking mental health care make you feel well as i mentioned before i am a counseling degree seeking counseling student i feel prideful you know i think seeking out mental health is such a courageous thing to do Something that we do with our clients is sometimes we thank them for coming in because it is such a big deal. If you've experienced something traumatic, facing that in therapy is like, wow. Not a lot of people would do that because one of the symptoms of specifically post-traumatic stress disorder is avoiding the situation and not thinking about it. But sometimes facing it is the most important thing that you have to do. And What better way to do it than with a therapist who's not going to judge you, who's going to help you make goals and heal from that pain. Therapy can be a really scary thing and seeking it out is, it it can be a lot, you know, Um, especially if you're in a family that has that stigma against mental health. health. You know, I'm proud that I can fully say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take care of myself. I'm trying to improve because there's so much to improve on so much to work on. And I'm just at a place where, you know, I'm trying to get there because one day, you know, I want to have a family and, you know, I have my boyfriend here and I definitely don't want him to be my emotional support. You know, that's not fair to him or my family. It's just kind of on me to kind of heal myself, you know? So I am proud of being able to seek out mental health treatment because it's, it's what needs to happen in order to take care of myself. And I think it all comes with self-worth and self-esteem because I I like myself. Um, sometimes it is hard for me to say that. Self-esteem is definitely something I have struggled with all my life, um, appearance-wise. But I think therapy has allowed me to think about all of the evidence that shows me I am worth it and I am worth the self-care. I'm worth the self-love. I worked hard to be where I'm at. You know, there are other things other than my appearance that I like about myself. Even if I don't like my appearance at the moment, there are things about my appearance I like. Like I like my hair and I like the color of my eyes. And sometimes we are the way we are and sometimes we can't help it, you know. And of course, it's not going to help everyone. That's why you go to counseling because you need different care than I do. 
but that's what helps me kind of think I'm worth it. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that, that made me smile. No one can see that in a recording. But, you know, I think that's a good transition to some of these other questions I have. And, you know, I think you, you touched on, like, self-esteem and, like, self-worth. How would you define those two terms? It seems they're kind of similar, but, like, maybe a little different. Just so the audience, like, has some grounding there. Yeah, so I think self-worth is related to more of how worthy you are of taking care of yourself or how worthy you are of finding love or getting the education that you want or that you deserve. It's more based on what you think you deserve, whereas self-esteem is kind of your self-love, how you view yourself in relation to other people. So I think those are like the slight differences. They're pretty much the same, but a little different. (laughs) No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you shared some like good examples of how you tell yourself, like to to help you build like good self-worth and good self-esteem. What advice would you give to other first gens trying to work on building up their like self-esteem or their self-worth? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, being a first generation student person, it's difficult. It's a very specific and and unique experience that not many people experience. I think you should be proud of who you are. If that label brings stigma, I understand. It's it can be really difficult especially when you're trying to develop, you know, your identity and trying to distance yourself from your parents or your family. And not distancing in the way like you'll never talk to them. It's just you know, maybe building your own opinions, your own style, thinking for yourself. Because at the end of the day, family will love you. Family will be there for you. Even if you do make those opinions, it's just about establishing those boundaries. That's very important to establish them earlier rather than later. Because you, I think it's important in life that you are able to make your own decisions for where you're headed in life. Understandably, you may not know where you want to go in life. There's so many options. I'm still deciding where I want to go right now. You know, what what's going to happen after I grad school? Where am I going to end up working? You know, I, I want to go back to Cleveland, but that might not happen. So just like reflecting a little on what direction you might want to go to. Seeking out mental health if you need it. It's really important. Understandably, I went through a lot and I did a lot myself, but it's important to depend on others, people as well. Not everyone is going to let you down. There are good people in the world that are willing to help you through things. Um, I had some wonderful mentor mentors back at Cleveland State that told me, you know, you should go out and do something great. You're made for greatness. Or that taught me, that guided me the right way. Or that told me, you should get out of Cleveland because you can go get a better education elsewhere. And that's, of course, not going to be the same story for everyone. But just finding those mentors that can help you through applications, like the FAFSA College Now was just such a great source for me because I was always confused on how to fill out FAFSA and do all of that. And that resource was just so helpful to me. So finding mentors, finding resources in the community, getting mental health treatment if you need it, you deserve it. It's the first step to loving yourself taking care of yourself. So it's extremely important that you do that. Establishing healthy boundaries. Doing mindfulness activities. Mindfulness activities are things like meditating, doing yoga if you like it, exercising, doing something with your hands that you love, getting away from that technology and really experiencing life in the present, in nature. Whatever you like doing, that can be mindfulness. Healthcare is so important in today's world, especially with the pandemic. You know, I work as a intern in the UC Health Employee Assistance Program, and we've seen such a big spike in people looking for mental health treatment. Like, let me tell you, I do not run out of clients because there's so many people coming in for that mental health treatment. So if you need it, you can go get it. There are resources for everyone. Find them in your universities, in your agencies, in your community. Those are like the people that are going to help you when your family can't understandably as a first gen there might not be a family member that can help you through those applications through that mental health treatment seeking those resources but there are other people in your life in the community that can do that for you so just being open to networking and meeting other people in the community that can be that person for you no thank you so much for sharing such like wise words of wisdom 
you know, and I just want to thank you so much for your time again today. Super excited for everyone to listen to this podcast. So thank you again for joining us, Kayla. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good time. And thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you learned some valuable lessons about why you should feel pride as a first-gen student and how, what are the steps you can take to building that confidence. For me, it's an ongoing challenge to remind myself why I should be prideful of being first-gen. So often we're told it's a disadvantage to have to learn how to navigate something for the first time, but you should take a lot of pride in the fact that you are doing it and that you're not doing it alone, that there's a whole community of us out there. And we can ask for help when we need it, and also we're just very capable and can handle things. So remember to be prideful for who you are, be authentic, listen to yourself, and ask for help when you need it. Uh, Thanks so much for joining today, and we hope to see you in our next episode. Bye.